encouraged by God's continued faithfulness to Redeemer and for your faithfulness to worship uh, with him, with us together, whether that's virtually or in person. During the elders meeting this last week, we evaluated current Sunday worship services, attendance and capacity and believe that we can safely accommodate uh, more people in in the morning service. We also think it's wise to continue the evening service through the month of February. And we're going to continue to keep you updated and reevaluate things as we, we move forward. And I also just wanted to say, I, I, I want to make this a sort of repetitive drum in our church. As you saw the numbers, uh, we, we finished the year in the black again, um, which is remarkable given how challenging 2020 was. And so I, I, wanna, I want you, you guys to hear me constantly say, as your pastor, this comes from Adam, this comes from other people on staff at Redeemer, we very much feel your care over our families, and we are very grateful for your generosity. I, and I can't believe um, that we had such a great year financially. And so thank you to everyone that gave. And if you're new to Redeemer and you don't even know what a tithe is, um, churches take care of their pastors. Uh, and they allow us to take care of our families. And so thank you for that. We are in, uh, for the next two weeks, we're going to be in Matthew 11 before we get back to the book of Revelation. And the, there are several reasons why I think that's appropriate to do. And one of the main ones is that it helps us understand what it means to, to read apocalyptic literature because much of what Revelation is describing is what happened during the days of Jesus's life in ministry on earth. And you're going to see some of that here in the text, but it also gives us a framework for how to think about how God reveals himself to us in today's time. And it's not necessarily predictive. It's that always this is going on. The kingdom of God comes into your life. And it comes into the world and it always looks different than we might initially think, especially to people who grow up in religious environments. And so you're going to see that here in this text It's from Matthew 11 uh, verses 1 through 18. We're going to skip a section and go down to verse 24 and 25. This is God's word to you this morning. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John, that is John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And they went away. Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning him. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. And I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it's written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. 
And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has an ear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sing a dirge and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Skip down to verse 25 and 26. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, it's our practice uh, here at Redeemer to spend some moments in silence before we engage in prayer. And part of why we do that is we think that all time is eternal. And so what you participate in right now in this very moment is engaging with eternity. If God is outside of time, he sees all time as very important. And so before I preach, I want to pray that God engages you in your eternal reality. And you can do that right here, right now, if you want. And so that's a very important thing. That's a weighty thing. And so we're going to spend some moments in silence. And what I want you to ask God in those moments is to reveal to you what it's like to be childlike towards him. Let's pray. Father, each moment that we experience has the weight of eternity um, for us to see, for us to experience you. It has the potential for glory itself. And many of our lives, mine included, are so, so very distracted by the circumstances, by the problems that we see in other people. And Lord, that's just not your way. Your way is to show us what it means to be needy. Your way is to show us what it means to come to you and find rest. And so, Lord, I ask that you would do that, that as you spoke hard words to your people and kind words to your people's enemies, um, I ask, Father, that you would show us what that means for our time and our space here in Lincoln, Nebraska, and that we would be so gentle and follow your way to be lowly, uh, to be humble. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, today we're going to talk about when the confusion of Christianity sets in. There's two ways to respond to that confusion. You can respond in a childish way or a childlike way. Point one. The confusion of Christianity. If you're a Christian, it isn't very long before the circumstances in your life get tossed around in such a way that would get you to question what Jesus uh, really came to do in your life and who he is. Um, whether that is something going on in the world or internal in your life, it isn't very long after following Jesus that you begin to wonder if, if uh, he is really who he says 
that he is. And that's the circumstance that John the Baptist finds himself in in our passage. Now, remember, this is very, very funny, I think. Uh, John the Baptist's point in his entire life was to be the prophet of Jesus, to make him known. You can think of his whole life as a big arrow saying, look to Jesus. He said things like, uh, you know, look, I'm baptizing you with water, but the guy that's coming after me, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He also looked at Jesus and said, now that, that is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. And then he actually baptized Jesus himself. He literally handled Jesus. And yet, what do we see here in our passage? In the first few verses, John is not so sure what Jesus is about. Just let that sink in for a moment. The prophet of Jesus himself is confused about Jesus and his ways. And the reason why is because John's life took a massive turn towards suffering and a different kind of isolation, not like wilderness, monastic isolation, like prison isolation, And that was his situation. He was locked up. And he got locked up because the religious experts and leaders of the day were working with the Roman government. And they kept hearing from John. He was like, hey, you need to repent or the wrath of God is going to come onto you. And they didn't like that. And so they colluded with a guy named Herod and got him put in prison. And so there he is in prison. Hearing talk about this figure named Jesus, and this guy was apparently creating a bigger buzz than he was creating when he was in the wilderness doing all this weird stuff. And you would think that in John's mind, like, oh, well, th- this is what I predicted. I knew this was going to happen. I actually spoke about this happening. But here in our passage, he asked his disciples who were visiting him in prison. He's like, hey, go ask this figure this question. Uh, are you the one? Or should we look for another? Now, I think it is the testimony of Scripture, but also my experience as I listen to people and I experience life myself, we're all asking that question. Uh, Are you the one? I worked in college ministry for about 10 years. Most college students were asking uh, as they walked into coffee shops. I remember uh, even when I was in college, I would get like a call from like a random number like, oh, Maybe it's the one, you know, <laughs> the one who's going to solve all my problems. Um, and if, if you get older, typically you don't look for that in relationships. You look for it in money or a job or a certain lifestyle that you think is going to give you peace. And you quickly realize that all things can pose as the one to bring you peace, to bring you shalom. And John the Baptist isn't beyond questioning whether Jesus is the one or not. He's doubting whether he is the one. And here's Jesus's answer. It's like, look, you go back and tell John, verses four through six, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Now, I was wondering when I was reading this passage, like a simple yes would have been (laughs) sufficient, but Jesus gives this sort of long answer. 
And it can be a little bit confusing to us because we are a little bit less familiar with the Old Testament. But those seven things mentioned are basically a summary of the Old Testament, specifically the prophets. And John, being from the line of prophets, would have known exactly what he meant. That he was indeed a summary of what it was like when God was going to come into the world through a figure called the Messiah. Now, uh, why are we looking at this passage in light of our current climate and in light of how we think about the book of Revelation? Um, The first century Jewish people were obsessed with the end times. Uh, They called it back then uh, the next age. And they lived with a heightened sense that God was going to come through a person and restore Israel. The Old Testament called restore the fortunes of Jacob. And here's what they thought that was going to look like, that there was going to be a guy named the Christ, the Messiah, and he was going to defeat the Romans, which was the dominant world power at the time. And when this Messiah figure would come, then the Jews would know that the end was here. And what that meant was that he was going to give them their land back. He was going to give them their money back, their religion. And he was going to judge the nations that were oppressing them with an iron fist. And he was going to make the enemies of God submit Rome. And so... The reason why passages like this seem a bit odd to us is because we don't recognize the heightened sense of anxiety that they felt. They felt out of control. They felt like they were losing everything. They were so scared. They wanted relief, and they wanted relief for some decent reasons, and they wanted answers, and they wanted a leader that took charge Someone who knew what he was doing. And the reason why everyone was confused, and I mean everyone, is because Jesus doesn't come with force. He calmly comes in and he just sort of seems like he's speaking in riddles, healing obscure people. And worst of all, and this is by far the worst, uh, he was more confrontational with his own people than with the Romans. One commentator says part of John the Baptist's confusion is coming from the fact that Jesus didn't immediately come to judge people. So Jesus is saying in verses four through six, John, you actually, uh, O prophet, need to go back to the scriptures and look again. He's saying in my kingdom, what happens first before judgment is healing and grace, specifically grace towards one's enemy is the initial first step of what Jesus is about. And what we see next in our passage is when that comes into the life of a human being, when that comes into the life of the world, there are basically two responses to that. One is very childish, which ultimately ends in violence, and one is very childlike, which ends in grace and rest. And we're going to look at that first response. The childish response to the confusion of Christianity starts in verse 7 and goes through 18. Jesus starts in verse 7 with saying to his people, Jewish people, said, what did you go out to the wilderness to see? 
You were intrigued because John was so weird and strange. Did you go see a reed shaken by the wind, a man dressed in soft clothing, a prophet? Jesus says, well, he is the prophet. If you can, if you can take it, he's the, he's the premier archetype. He's the goat of prophets. But my kingdom isn't ultimately about John or the Romans, but it is deeply spiritual. John is, is confused by this, but what Jesus is showing us is that there is a spiritual war backing everything that is being manifested on earth. Everything. And Jesus says, you know, from the days of John the Baptist till now, verse 12, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. And in just a couple of chapters, we see what that verse is referring, referring to as John's head is put on a platter and handed to Herod. And this is what we've been learning in Revelation, that the works of evil led by Satan himself. And I know some people in this room don't buy into a being named Satan. But he is real and ever present in this world. And what he does is that he uses puppets here on earth in the form of human beings, whether they're secular or religious, it doesn't matter, to try and stop the Christ. That's exactly what happened here in this passage. It's what Revelation is talking about. But it does not look, that, that force of stopping the Christ does not look violent at first. Childishness to Christ coming into our lives looks like an unwillingness to learn anything new, an unwillingness to listen to opposing voices. But ultimately, childishness is seen in thinking that God has come into the world to support our agenda instead of us getting behind his. And how it manifests itself in our lives it is seen in like this constant low-level dissatisfaction with your life and the people around you and sort of perpetual critique of everything. Uh, when I was a freshman in college, I remember this minister, a Baptist minister, who was a part of a ministry that I was not really involved with, who wanted to read a book with me that was sort of a popular evangelical book at the time. And I was uh, told that this book was kind of cheesy and not really biblical enough. And I was arguing and nitpicking with Stuart constantly as we walked through this book in a coffee shop. And he patiently listened to this like 18-year-old know-it-all uh, wax eloquent. And then I finally pointed out this one section of the book that I particularly didn't like. And I said, hey, uh, this, this part here is especially ridiculous and it's just an untrue statement. And he said, I still remember his demeanor. He said, Matt, I just want to warn you, um, that section you just read was actually a quote from the Bible. That was the message, and it was re retranslated, but like that was God's word that you don't like. I was so caught up with being biblical and defending myself that it didn't matter what you put in front of me. I was going to find something wrong with it. Jesus says that that's this generation. That's exactly what this generation, don't, don't think us yet, this generation was doing. Verse 16 through 18, this is how Eugene Peterson translate, translates those verses. How can I account for this generation? The people have been like spoiled children whining to their parents. We wanted to skip rope, but you're always too tired. We wanted to talk, 
but you were always too busy. John came fasting and they called him crazy. I came feasting and they called me a boozer, a friend of misfits. What, is, what does that mean? Remember, uh, Jesus is talking to his own people, his kindred. And he says, look, you wanted somebody holy. John was so holy that you thought he was demonic. It's like, okay, well, you want somebody that's more in the world. Well, I came and I was with people trying to bless people and you said I was a drunk. So what do you want? The connotation is they don't know. Look, when I questioned the Bible itself, I wasn't willing to learn. I had an agenda for Stuart, for myself, and ultimately for God. And God was kind to show me that. I thought I was the judge. And do you know, I, I, was, <laughs> I was so miserable then. I didn't have joy. And insecure. Everything was so important. <laughs> you ever notice the type of thing that you do when you're grumpy? Yeah, I'm not talking about depression or, or sadness. Uh, I'm talking about that inner voice that sees the problem with everyone else, like with hyper clarity. You, know, you don't have to train your children to use a whiny voice. I love you, Liza and Ambrose, but you know that that came uh, innately. And grumpiness is rooted in thinking that the world and the people in it revolve around you. And when it doesn't go your way, you have a right to complain. And when a child thinks that, you know, you know this, if you've raised children, if you are a child, maybe you know this. Uh, when a child acts like that, they're impossible to please and they're miserable themselves and they're miserable to everyone else around them. And so what do you have to do? As a parent, you got to go into their room, into their life, and you say, look, I love you, but you cannot get your own way. And that has to be said over and over and over again in various ways throughout the years. And if you continue to get your own way, if you continue to force everybody else to submit to your own way, you're going to destroy yourself and destroy those around you. And you'll look for relief constantly and you'll be grabbing people and you don't know why anyone will be your friend. And it's because you're being childish. And Jesus says relief will ultimately come at the expense of other people if you go down that road. And he says, anger is really murder. Verse 19, wisdom is justified by her deeds. He's telling the Jewish people, watch. You watch what happens to John. And he said, you watch what happens to me. And he's saying, he's saying to his own people, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do it. Think about your own life. We don't think that our dissatisfaction with others or our grumpiness 
is violent. But that's where it ends. And that strand goes to the nicest of us, Nebraska nice. And we all have to deal with it. The confusion of Christianity comes when you face that deep inner unrest in yourself and the world and you ask and you ask your, yourself the question, you ask Jesus the question. Do you see what's going on? God, are you in control of anything? Because that's where John was at in his heart. And the hard thing is that Jesus knew John's destiny. Jesus ordained it. Not in collusion with evil, but to show the world that this is what happens when human beings get their own way without God intervening. You get heads on platters of people who didn't do anything wrong. So what's the alternative? The alternative is to respond to Jesus in a childlike way, not childish. Verse 25 and 26. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. That word revealed is actually the word for the book Revelations, the word apocalypse. And Jesus had just pronounced judgment on these three cities right before that, who were sort of in league as uh, nationalists against Rome. And this is what he chooses to say right on the hills of that. He says, Father, I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding. And he's saying that really gifted people, strong people aren't going to see what I'm like, Jesus says. They're not even going to understand their own self-inflicted judgment. Because they're going to be so blind with their grumpiness and violence. And I want you to always remember when the Jews delivered Jesus over to be killed, they in their minds thought that they were doing something biblical. And this is the fascinating thing about this passage. Jesus says, Father, I am so grateful that that's how it was. That it's that hidden from people. I'm grateful that they, they don't even see it. Isn't that amazing? And what I'm also grateful for, Father, is that you reveal these things to little children. There are two Greek words for children. One's uh, for like a toddler and one's for more like an infant. The underdeveloped and unskilled, it's the infant one that he uses. And what that means is that Jesus loves it when you come to God totally needy. It was God's grace to reveal the gospel to infants. To reveal the mystery of how the gospel works itself out in the world. Now think about that for a moment. You, you may have heard the word childlike faith, but what is a childlike response to the confusion of Christianity that Jesus is looking for in people? It's simple. Um, dependent neediness on Jesus. Ooh. 
It's the opposite of entitlement. It's when you begin to let go of needing people and the circumstances of your life to change. And you begin to move towards God with curiosity. You kind of see it when you take your child to the zoo for the first time, as opposed to when they go to like 10th time and they walk around like they own the place, you know? Do you think it's possible for you to be distracted by God more than your circumstances? Jesus is saying that the way to face your confusion, the way to make sense of the hardship and depravity of it all, is to not be wise and skilled and have good arguments, but it's to be so intimate with God, to be so near to Him, that it's like a baby in the arms of a mother. That baby doesn't know how to say mine or no or not yet or I I hate you yet. (laughs) It's just glad to eat and sleep and be held. Uh, This is what I know from experience, from you all as I hear you talk, from myself, from people in the world. You want to be held. Comforted. be told it's going to be okay. When I pick up my son Lazarus, he's four, and take him to the room for a discipline. You know, he's, he's a strong little, little dude. Uh, he's throwing punches and trying to grab the rails and screaming in my face. It's almost like his tears like go out now. It's like, man, that defies gravity. Um, And when he's doing that, you know, I'm just like, I'm trying to be (laughs) in control. But I know it's not, I know his tantrums aren't personal. The little brother just needs some love and to be held. And he's not going to get his own way. He's grumpy about it. But he just needs to be held long enough to calm down. We're going to talk about what that experience is like next week. But Jesus simply says, your main problem, along with everyone else's in the world, is that we forgot how kind God is. How gentle He is. How very in control of it all He is. And He says, you'll find so much rest if you just come to me, for me. And that offer is always on the table if you're breathing You may have been throwing a tantrum. I may have been throwing a tantrum. And God is always willing to receive your neediness when no one else will. And there is a reason behind the confusion. And he's he's testing us to see if we will repent of our own agendas for how we think our life ought to go and come to him just for him. Next week, we're going to talk at length about what that looks like and begin to experience what, that, uh, what that's like to, to live a life of rest when we come to Jesus. And then we'll get back to Revelation. And I, I'm going to end with this. You know, right before Jesus went into Jerusalem, he said this kind of strange phrase. He said, you know, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I've longed to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her. But you would not. You weren't willing 
And that's not the crazy, I mean, that's a crazy thing to say. Uh, but then he gets on his donkey and he rides into Jerusalem towards the violence that he knew would devour him. Which means, it's got to mean, Jesus knows the motivations behind why we do all things. And he still moves towards We don't know the motivations behind why people do what they do because we're not judge. We can't see into the heart of another human being. And Jesus could, and he still moves towards. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you've revealed them to little children. And we so desperately don't want to be little children. Oh, we want to be wise in our own eyes. We we want to get it done. We want to be efficient. Uh, We want to be skilled. And at the end of the day, that's the root of all the insecurity that we face, this pride that we can live life independent from you. And so, Lord, you slowly chip away at us and you bring us to submission to you, the king. And so, Lord, would you show us what that means for our church? Would you show us what it means and how we interact specifically with those that we have a